Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We take up a new section this morning of God's great doctrinal letter, and as we do, we start to climb another part of the mountain. I don't know if you feel this way, at least I know I do. If you're working through a book like Romans, and it's long, and we'll be here for, for a while, and yet so so rich, wouldn't want to go any faster. You could probably say I, I could go slower, and yet you come to these, these, these places, whether it's a new chapter or a, or a new subject, and, and it looks like a mountain in front of you. you you got this big hill to climb, like at the end of chapter 6. You, you begin to start chapter 6, and you, 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 you look at it. I don't know how this goes together. And then you, you start listening, and you listen more, and it becomes clear, oh, okay. It gets easier and easier. And then toward the end, you, you kind of know how chapter 6 goes together, and you're almost like this flat path. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you hit the base of, a, of another incline in chapter 7, which is, which is where we're at, and we're... We're looking up at the mountain, and this section of the mountain of Romans is not very easy to traverse. It's got some, got some tricky, tricky footing. If you already read ahead, you know that the general topic is, is the law, and in more particular, how we relate to it. But, but if I would ask you uh, what Romans 7 is, is talking about, you would Besides the law, you, you, you may, not, may not be able to answer that, at least not quickly. There, there's some other things operating in the background of Romans 7 that may not be as obvious, but they're just as important. And one of those is biblical anthropology, which is also called the doctrine of man. It's the study of what the Bible has to say about humanity, about mankind. And Romans 7 gives significant insight into how all of that works. The, the doctrine of, of man, anthropology, covers a number of areas, but it basically looks at how human beings are put together and how we relate to God and, and how we're affected by things. So things like man's origin would fall under biblical anthropology, so creation and our purpose. We've been made to be fruitful and multiply. Things like our makeup or our constitution. Are we dichotomous or trichotomous? There's a material part of us. So there's this flesh, body, and soul. And there's an immaterial part of us, like, like the soul and, and the spirit. It, it also covers the study of mankind as an image bearer. Well, we bear God's attributes. We represent God on the earth. It just got, uh, covers things like distinct genders and roles that assist us in doing those kinds of things. But... But one of its main topics, one of the main areas that biblical anthropology covers is, is our sin nature. Things like the fall, how it affects us. Biblical anthropology covers questions like, how fallen are we? I mean, how deep does the problem go to the surface, to the next level, all the way down to the core? I mean, how does that... How does the fall come out in life? I mean, does sin affect our minds? I mean, can we not think right? If so, how much? Our wills? And if so, to what extent? And while that may not sound very interesting to, to some of you, I would say biblical anthropology is one of the greatest needs of the church today. Or I could say it another way. Biblical anthropology is the greatest weakness of the church today. There are two doctrines 
if you get right, everything else will fall into place. And those same two doctrines, if you get them wrong, it will warp your biblical navigation system to the point that you can't make sense out of anything that the Bible teaches. Two doctrines. If you get right, everything falls into place. And the same two, if you get wrong, your trajectory is going to be off. And those two doctrines are the authority of Scripture and this doctrine of man, this biblical anthropology. I mean, if you understand the Bible is your sole authority and totally sufficient for life and godliness, then you'll know where to look for the answers, all of the answers. Not just some of them, but all of them. And there are many other sources that that vie for that title of authority, like your own thinking or human wisdom or or the world. There's only one source that has absolute authority over the Christian, and that is the Bible. And when you realize that, you know there's only one place to look. There's only one place to look for the answer. And if you look at that authoritative source for what it says about mankind, you will see that he is depraved beyond repair. Mankind in the fall was so irreparably corrupted that it takes nothing short of divine grace to save him. He can't save himself. All of that is directly from the pages of of Scripture, not some dead theologian. In fact, the, the depth of the fall was so great that the first scene recorded in Genesis right after the fall is brother murdering brother. That's how fall how bad the fall is. And then right on the heels of that is the global flood where God destroys the whole lot and and he starts over. Save Noah and his family in order to rescue his promise and fulfill what he said he was going to do that through one of the, the line of, of one of Noah's sons, blessing would come, salvation would come, blessing would come from the tents of Shem. But you also clearly see that Noah and his sons, they weren't the answer. <laughs> the first thing that you see right after the flood, there's this new creation narrative. Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and now you can eat animals rather than just plants. And what's well, the first thing that Noah does? He gets drunk and his sons disobey. And that story just repeats itself over and over and over in the Bible all the way up to Christ. I mean, was Abraham the answer? No. <laughs> he sinned. What about Isaac? He's a liar like his dad. What about Jacob? He was a deceiver. What about Moses? Was he the answer? No, he was a murderer. Joshua disobeyed God in the land. David was King David, the man after God's own heart. Was he the answer? No, obviously, Bathsheba. Was Solomon the answer? I can give you a thousand reasons why Solomon was not. And on and on and on until one obedient man came who was also God. And that man was Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. And once you see that man is in that condition, even the ones that the Bible calls righteous and the ones that the the, the Bible says that they're after his own heart, that once you see that man is in this depraved condition, then all the other doctrines fall into place. I mean, you'll have no issue with the sovereignty of God and salvation, for example, if you understand what the Bible teaches about man or free will or God's plan for Israel or anything else. I mean, when you look at the Bible that way, it definitely, definitively says mankind is hopelessly lost. He's a slave to sin and unable to recover himself. The only conclusion then is God must save him, and God must initiate it. And you now know you have one authority, the doctrine of Scripture. You have one authority. So whatever this book says, even if it's uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. I just submit to it because I believe in the authority of Scripture. And Scripture tells me 
these things about man. This is also the reason that many churches are, are so messed up. Because they miss these two doctrines, biblical anthropology in particular. And if you don't understand what the Bible says about man, then you're going to think he's better than he really is. And so you're going to use the gospel like a band-aid rather than a sword that runs you through and then balm that heals you afterward. You're going to think Jesus, that your primary task is to make Jesus look good to people instead of being passionately clear with them about who he is and what we are. You're going to think that you can fix a man with external things or philosophies like changing his environment or education or psychiatry or whatever it is. But, and frankly, if you don't understand biblical anthropology, you're going to continue the problem of the fall. You're actually going to perpetuate it. Because the root of the fall is man trying to lead himself rather than God instead of yielding to the one who created him. So why tell you all that? Because Romans 7 is one of the Bible's greatest chapters on anthropology. Its clear theme is the law, but it also explains the law's inability to change us and why, which is all about our sin problem. It's not about God's holy precepts. You see, unlike Romans 3, God's already talked about, Paul's already talked about sin and our sin nature. He's already talked about anthropology in Romans 3. Romans 3 declares how the falls affected us and how deep the, the stain goes. And Romans 7 shows how sin's effects works out in life, how the weakness of our flesh is exposed. I know this is small, but you know this passage already. This is Romans 3. That's the summary of Romans 1 and Romans 2. Remember, Romans 1 is all about the, the pagans and the immoral people. They're, they're condemned. And then chapter 2 is all about the, the moral man. He's condemned too. Chapter 3 just summarizes our fallen nature, our fallen condition. And it says, all are under sin, as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. That's all declaration. It's all declaring to us the condition of mankind. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The, the path of peace they have not known. Declaration. Those are all declarations. It, God's saying this is true. This is the condition of humanity. That's the picture of our nature, what we're really like, regardless of what we think or what we feel. But then Romans 7 goes a step further, goes beyond the declaration and says things like verse 5. Look at Romans 7 verse 5. It says, well, while we were in this Romans 3 condition, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit of death. I mean, watch the action words that shows us what sin does. Look, if you would, at verse 8 of Romans 7. It says, but sin, taking opportunity, there's action, through the commandment produced in me. There's what it does. Coveting of, of every kind. Look at verse 11. Sin. This Romans 3 sin. Taking opportunity through the commandment. Deceived me and through it killed me. And then probably the section of Romans 7 that most of you know, which illustrates the work of the flesh in Paul's life, beginning in verse 14. Look at Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. I'm what Romans 3 says, sold into bondage to sin. And watch the action. Verse 15, 
For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am practicing, what I would, uh, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. It, it's not on declaration, but on the doing. I mean, chapter 7 describes what this sin nature of chapter 3 actually does in us, explains it. I mean, it, it looks at sin's effects, uh, effects on a cellular level, and it ends with a, an illustrative portrait of Paul's life. It looks at Paul's own struggle with the, with the flesh, and it ends pointing us to hope. I mean, chapter 3, this one up on your screen there, ends with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how it ends. Look at how chapter 7 ends. Romans 3 declares, Romans 7 describes and shows what it does. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who will set me free from Romans 3 and Romans 7? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will set me free from having no fear of God? Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3 declares human depravity. Romans 7 describes sin's work, and it illustrates it. It says, what's the solution? And then he he answers, Jesus Christ. He's the answer, not the law. That's not the answer. I mean, together, Romans 3 and 7 make up the thrust of Paul's biblical anthropology. And so this morning, what I want to, want to do is, is I want to start Romans 7 by seeing it as a whole. But we need to look at the entire chapter to see the big picture before we, we, we go and start breaking it down. Because Romans 7 is one of the most wrangled over and memorable parts of, of this letter. But it's often misunderstood, and I think it's misunderstood because people don't look at it from the 30,000-foot level. We can focus too much on the parts, too much on the questions, and miss the whole. And there's plenty to get lost in in Romans 7. If, I mean, a lot of people, they read Romans 7, they come on Romans 7, and they get into it. They, they get through Romans 5 and 6, and this is great, and they get in Romans 7, and they say, oh, forget about it. Just grow to Romans 8. I mean, it's about the law anyway. I'm a Christian. Romans 7 has some of the most difficult parts of the book to navigate. I mean, I can give you one example, like, like, like verse 9. Look at Romans 7, verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. What in the world does that mean? I mean, when did the commandment come? I mean, when, I thought Paul was a Jew. I thought he always had the law. And how was he alive apart from the law? I thought we were dead in sin. I mean, was Paul alive apart from the law before his bar mitzvah? Alive how? I mean, what does it mean that he died? We'll we'll answer that whenever we get there. But there are pages written in commentaries on that one verse. All these little questions that that are there. Or, Or the one that's probably more obvious at the end of the chapter. Was Paul a believer or or was he not? Things I do, I don't want to do. I mean, was Paul a Christian when he was saying that? Or is he describing his unsaved life be- before that? Or is he, Paul even talking about himself? I mean, there are some commentators that say that Paul's talking about Israel there. It's like Israel personified. And sadly, these questions are what most people think about whenever they hear Romans 7. One preacher said that, that because of that, many people are more aware of Romans 7 and all of the things that are in it rather than Romans 6 which is a powerful chapter. 
And the point of Romans 7 is not whether Paul was a believer or not, or even the difficulties that are there, you being able to do some kind of exegetical Olympics and answer them. I mean, Romans 7 is part of a bigger argument that Paul's been making since chapter 5, and you need to see it in order to understand it. So this morning, I wanted to do a flyover of the chapter and grasp it in its proper context so you can clearly see what's going on. And I think when you see it that way, you're going to love Romans 7. You're not going to want to skip over it and get to 8. You should think of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 like a giant digression. It's like a, it's like a giant parenthesis that Paul takes to address some misunderstandings about the gospel that, that he's preaching. In fact... We dare not do this, but you can actually read Romans without Romans 6 and 7. Again, we would never do that because it's God's Word. But let me show you how this is a a giant rabbit trail or digression to explain some things. Let's actually do it. Turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Romans 5, verse 18. Paul says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And then in verse 20, Paul brings up the law and sin and grace. Verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through Jesus Christ to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now hold your finger there and turn to Romans 8.1. Paul brings up law and sin and grace, and how grace is reigned through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's, the, there's grace, there's Christ, there's, there's the law for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. And on and on and on. I mean, Paul picks back up his thought in Romans 8, 1 that he leaves off in the end of Romans 5. And the reason for chapter 6 and 7 is because Paul knows that once he brings up law and sin and grace, he needs to answer some questions about those three things. He needs to debunk some errors because this is not the first rodeo for the Apostle Paul. He's preached this gospel before. And there are several points when he preaches the gospel where people get wrapped up around the axle of what he's saying. In fact, he's actually already told us that in in Romans. Look what he says in Romans 3.8. He says, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. I mean, that's what Paul had heard before. He's through his missionary journeys. He's preached this in many synagogues. And he knows when he preaches the gospel in all of its purity, people have questions. They get wrapped up about grace and the extent of sin and the law. What's the place of the law? And so... His message has been misrepresented before. And there are two things that people were saying against the message of the gospel, and it had to do with the extent of grace and the application of the law, both in light of sin. And that's exactly what Paul covers in Romans 6 and Romans 7. He answers all of those issues 
in two chapters before he picks back up his thought in Romans 8.1. And Romans 6 that we just got through is all about grace and its overpowering of sin. And Romans 7 is about how grace triumphs in the place of the law. I mean, you recall this from, from what we just got out of. Think of the part of the mountain that you just got done climbing. I mean, the first argument was, I mean, they're saying, if it's all grace, then we're just going to continue in sin without any restraint. And so Paul spends all of chapter 6 exposing the error of that argument, which is what we just worked through. He says that that's impossible. It's also impractical. It's impossible because grace changes your master. Paul says, my message doesn't produce lawless people. It actually produces obedient people. Because in grace, you're no longer a slave of sin. You become a slave of Christ. And then he applies that spiritually. He says, and, and everyone's a slave. You're either slave of sin or of righteousness. But a Christian, by grace, follows a new master by yielding to him. And it's also impractical to continue in sin because of there's no benefit in the old life. This is the section we just got through. There's true fruit in the new one. You wouldn't want to go back to sin if you, if you could. And in the end, you get eternal life instead of endless death. And now, in chapter 7, Paul turns to the misunderstandings about the law after he deals with the misunderstandings about grace and sin. In the argument that some were making about Paul's message of justification by faith alone, they were saying, Paul, your message of faith alone requires the law to be disregarded. It's even viewed as something bad. And they got that by listening to Paul in Romans 5.21. And you may have thought that too. Look at Romans 5.21. This is where he leads off before he would go to, there is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can imagine without any explanation, this verse alone may cause some stumbling. The law came in so that tr the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, Paul clearly says here, the law was added. It wasn't even the main thing. And when it did... When God did bring in the law through Moses, it didn't help people get better. It actually increased their sin. Paul's message about the law was it came in alongside of God's main plan. God's main plan was salvation by faith alone. That was his plan in the, new, in the Old Testament as well as the New, which, which is what we saw in, in Romans chapter 4. Remember Romans chapter 4 is all about Abraham. It's all about David. We're saved by faith alone in God's promise of grace alone long before Moses ever came. That's Paul's argument in Galatians. Long before you heard about this guy Moses, there was this man named Abraham, and he had a promise. God made a promise to him. Romans 4.1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? What does the Old Testament say about salvation? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. It's been by faith at that point in time. And then he definitively declares, declares in Romans 4, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I mean, that's what Paul was preaching in the synagogues, and that raised their eyebrows. But what caused Paul to be thrown out of the synagogues was Romans 5.21. When he told them why the law was added to the promise of Abraham. Why God gave the law to, to Moses. That's where the rub came in. 
I mean, when Paul said that the law was added, it came in alongside the promise to Abraham so that sin would increase, so that the transgression would grow. That got him thrown out. And that will get you thrown out of certain places too if you preach a gospel of pure grace. The law of Moses was not God's original way of salvation. God's promise to Abraham was. And the law of Moses came in alongside that promise to increase the sinfulness of mankind. Was man sinful before Moses? Absolutely. Was man sinful if they'd never heard of Moses or the law? Absolutely. Are they condemned? That's what he covers in chapter 1. Do the people that have the law, are they condemned? Are they sinners? Absolutely. That's what it says in chapter 2. But the law was brought in by God to increase the sinfulness of mankind. And to a person who was raised under the law, to love the law, that made them recoil. All right, I'm, I'm all for this message about the Messiah, Paul. What are you saying? I mean, it sounded like Paul was belittling the law. And listen to me. In one sense, he was. It also sounded like Paul was saying the law was bad and that the problem resided with the law, which he wasn't. And so he writes Romans 7 to address those misunderstandings. Against the gospel, against his message. And Paul's already talked about the law in Romans 2. And you remember that's the moral man, and his main point there was those who are under the law are condemned by God because they're sinners. I just told you that, Romans 2, verse 12. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You were sinners before the law, and you're sinners after you got the law. Paul's point then was Jewish people are no better than the pagans of chapter 1 because having the law doesn't save you. And now in Romans 7, he explains why the law doesn't give the answer to sin. In Romans 2, you're a sinner with or without the law. Romans 7 shows why the law can't fix the problem and why it takes specific grace. In Romans 7... Paul explains that the law cannot change the leopard's spots. But beyond that, he'll explain that, that it was used by God. God's intended purpose for the law was to apply it and get no results. In fact, you got more spots, which is his statement in 521 at the end of the chapter. That seems so odd whenever you first read it. What does it mean? Add the law and sin increase. I mean, why? Is that saying God's increasing sin? No. He'll deal with that. Chapter 7. I mean, when Paul said the law was added so that sin might increase, I mean, that's the question that you have. I mean, how could adding a holy law increase sin? Well, that's the question that Paul's readers had too. And Paul knows he needs to explain this. And chapter 7 is not only proof that the law can't solve the condition of sin, but it's also a thorough explanation of how adding, the adding of the law actually made our condition worse. So Paul says, those of you who want to reject grace and keep law... It can't solve your problem because you are the problem. And not only that, but because you're a sinner, the law actually makes you a worse one. You think it's the solution to your problem, and then it makes you righteous. God says it's exactly the opposite. Because anything that you apply to a sinner makes them worse. A sinner needs to be transformed. A sinner needs to be born again, born from above. Now think about how that sounded to a Jew. And you'll begin to understand why Paul takes an entire chapter to explain this. Romans 3.20 Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Jew didn't have a problem with that last part. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Amen, Paul. 
the Ten Commandments reveals that we are all sinners. But Paul says it did more than just make you aware of sin. It aroused my flesh, and I increased in sin whenever the law was added. Look at Romans 7, 7. They had no problem at the end of Romans 3.20. But look at Romans 7.7. 7. Watch how it goes beyond what he's already said in Romans 3.20. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, he says in 3.20. For I, Verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. More info. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Well, it needs some explanation, doesn't it? And that's what we have in this great chapter. Romans 7 actually teaches us three things. There are three lessons that you'll learn whenever we go through Romans 7. When you get to the top of the mountain, here's what you'll see. If you look back over your shoulder, you'll see that Romans 7 shows us why the law could not bear fruit to God. You'll also see that it gives us a detailed description of how sin responds in us to the law and other things around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said Romans 7 is the most profound analysis of sin anywhere in the Bible. It explains what sin does and how it does it. And finally, it will describe the function of the law and the place of the law now in the life of a believer. I mean, why was the law set aside and not permanent? Because alone it could not bear fruit to God. How does sin work in us and respond to the things around us, including how, how the flesh responds to God's holy law? It, it gets worse, not better. And how we now respond to the law because we're believers? How do we relate to the law under the New Testament? We're now under the law of spirit, which is life, not the oldness of the letter. That's what's coming. But Romans 7 doesn't just have three lessons. It also has three, a clicker is fast, three sections. So while the interpretation can be tricky, the breakdown is very plain. Part 1 is in verses 1 through 6 where he defines our relationship to the law. Part 2 in verses 7 through 12 where Paul defends the virtue of the law. The law is not the problem. In part 3, the section you know well, verses 13 through 25, describes an illustration of all he just got done saying in real life. I mean, the last section, again, you probably know by heart almost, are the first two sections applied to the Apostle Paul's life. Let's look at these one at a time. He defines a believer's relationship to the law in verses 1 through 6. Look at Romans 7, verse, verse 1. Here's the principle of the law. He says, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. There's the principle of the law. And then he illustrates that by what the law says about marriage. Verse 2, a married woman bound to her husband. And then he draws a conclusion in verse 4. The key of this first section is in verse 4. Why is he, why is he telling us this? Why, why give this illustration about, the, about marriage? Well, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, he's applying it, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Why? 
so that you can be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And what's the purpose of that? In order that we might bear fruit for God. You should underline that last part. You were freed from the law and placed under grace, married to Christ so that you could bear fruit to God before you couldn't. And so Romans 6, verses 1 through 6, Romans 6 begins with, We died to Christ, therefore we're dead to sin. In Romans 7, he teaches, We died with Christ, therefore we're dead to the law, so that we can bear fruit. And he just got done talking about the fruit that we bear. The old life, there was no fruit. The redeemed life, there's all kinds of fruit. Well, how did, where did that fruit come from? Well, it didn't come from the law. It became... It comes because you are now united to Christ. He says the law was not God's primary plan. Grace was. Why? One reason is because under the law you couldn't bear fruit. Only grace can transform you. And grace causes you to bear fruit. You're not going to bear any fruit trying to keep the law. That's what he just showed us in the end of chapter 6. Having now been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your fruit, your result, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Romans 6, grace frees you from your old master. Grace changes your master. Grace writes the law in your heart, and grace bears fruit to God. The law does not do that. In fact, it cannot do that. That's his argument. Which would then lead people to say, well, Paul's saying that the law's bad. Or that the problem was the law. But that's not true either. That's part two. Section two is a defense of the law. Look at what he says in verse 7 after he gets done with his first part about the, the marriage and what, what it means. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? That's what they were saying. And Paul gives the answer, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. No, no the law actually showed me what sin was. It defined it for me. The problem is not the law. The problem is in us. Look at verse 8. Watch the contrast. The problem is not the law. Where's the problem? But sin. There's the problem. Taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. Verse 11, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And, and here's this definitive conclusion about the law in verse 12, the second section. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And the virtue of the law is, is upheld. The law is not maligned by the apostle Paul. It's vindicated by him. It's put in its proper context, though, and its limitations are revealed. I mean, the great apostle is not preaching against the law. He's showing its purpose and yet its limitation. That's why there was not fruit. We're the problem. And until we get changed, then you can put stuff all over your walls and memorize everything that you want, and, and there's going to be no fruit. That's what he's saying. And the key word in chapter 6 is sin. It was used 17 times. Sin, sin, sin. And the key word in the seventh chapter is law. It occurs 18 times. And then Paul shows us how they interact with one another, how sin interacts with law. He says it's like fire and gasoline. He's also saying the, the law couldn't fix the problem. It, it actually, in fact, made us worse. But the issue's not the law, it's us. It's man. It's because of the flesh. 
Because when the flesh is subjected to the law, it, it flamed up. Because when we see the sign that says, do not fish, the very thing that we want to do is, there must be good fishing there, and that's where I'm going to fish. Or somebody puts a sign in the middle of, of a yard, a public place, a park, do not walk on the grass, I'm going to walk across the grass 35 times because it's my property in my country, blah, 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 right? That's what the law does. Don't give me a boundary, I'm going to cross the boundary. And you can put up all those signs that you want to, and you'll not stop anybody from fishing or walking on the grass. But you change somebody's heart that wants to be obedient, and then whatever that sign says, the law itself's not bad. We're bad. But then what Paul does, what every good teacher does, he illustrates it. And he uses his own life to do it. This is the third section, verses 13 through 25. He describes an illustration of these first two truths worked out in, in real life. He, he doesn't leave it to theory. He uses a personal example. His own experience demonstrates everything. That's the section that you know. And when we get to these passages, we'll talk about whether Paul's looking back at his unsaved life or he's talking about a current struggle where his remaining flesh even now is stirred up by the law. But, but the personal focus of, of Romans 7 can't be understated. I mean, Paul uses personal pronouns throughout chapter 7. Alva J. McLean counted how many there were. He said that the, the pronoun I was used 30 times, me was used 12 times, my was used 4 times, and myself once. 47, me, myself, and I's. 47 personal pronouns in 19 verses. That's a lot. And it's there you get to see the focus of the chapter, which is brought into this intensive clarity at the end. I mean, the chapter is focused on how me, myself, and I, how mankind interacts with the law outside of Christ. And the whole thing ends in a glorious way, verse 24 of Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul cries out. As his, as his flesh interacts with the law and he finds corruption within and no power in the commandments, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know what he's saying? Who will deliver me from myself? Where's the rescue from the personal programs interacting with the law? And the answer is by turning away from myself and turning toward Jesus Christ. There's the answer. It's not applying the law to myself. It's turning away from myself and looking to Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And look what happens whenever you look there. Look at Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who look away from themselves and they look away from the law and they look to Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation there. Why? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son. The answer wasn't in Moses or Noah or David or anybody else. The answer was in when God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. God condemned sin in the flesh 
Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Jesus Christ said, I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill it, didn't he? Not one jot or tittle will, be pass, will pass away. How did he do that? Right here. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And from then on, in chapter 8... The focus turns from me, myself, and I to Jesus Christ. And you see, the law cannot make us holy, even as a Christian, because we still have the flesh. And one day the flesh will be done away with. Who will deliver me from this body? But until then, God's provision to make us holy is not the law. It's the present power of the Spirit. You, you see, you need something more than dead commandments to change you. You, you need a life-giving Spirit. And you need Him because you still have flesh and you're, you still live in the world. And even though your heart is changed, and that's what Paul's warning us here. Don't try to use the law to be right with God to begin with. Its only power is to condemn you. Its only power is to reveal. And the more you press into it and try to keep it, the more you're going to find sin running rampant in your life. And don't try to use the law after you come to Christ because it still has no power to make you holy. Only the Spirit does both of those things. Only the Spirit can convert you, and only the Spirit can sanctify you. Or to say it another way and bring it back to our biblical anthropology, we are so depraved and wicked and so corrupted by the fall, it takes nothing less than grace and the third person of the Trinity to raise us out of that condition and keep us and change us by conforming us to the Son. That's the Paul point is making. The law is not bad. We are bad. And when you look into the law, you see yourself in a mirror. And when you look at the law, you see me, myself, and I, and you find no hope there. You can't use the oldness of the letter in your Christian life to become a better Christian. That's, there's no power there, too. But you've got something better than the law of Moses. You've got the newness of the Spirit living in you. And those of us who have looked away from ourselves and looked away from the mirror of the law, which reveals who we are and what we are, and those of us who have looked to Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. And the Spirit of God is now living in you. And He's given you real power through that Spirit to help you live. You want that kind of power? The only way you can get it is to look away from yourself and look to Christ. You ever tried to live the morals and the ethics of the Christian life before and failed? You need to turn to Christ by faith alone. It was offered to you by grace alone, and you'll gain that, that power in a changed life. But, but it begins by looking to him. Charles Spurgeon was converted on a Sunday morning in a snowstorm when the preacher couldn't even show up. And an old deacon that never didn't even have a text, didn't even have a sermon put together, read a passage out of the Bible that said, look and live. And he repeated the same thing over and over. Look to Christ and live. Look away from yourself. Look away from the law. Look away from all the things that you know, Charles, and look to Christ and live. And you know the rest of the story. It all begins by surrendering to him. Why don't you do that today? See what God does in your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you the clarity of your word. I love your law. I delight in the holiness that I see there. I, 
I love it because it, it represents attributes of you. I hate what I see there sometimes because it it reminds me of, of what I was not. But then looking from both of those things, I cast my eyes to the cross and to the advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is there mediating on my behalf what he has already accomplished and finished once for all. Thank you for that. Um, Lord, I pray anyone looking to themselves this morning, still trying to do it on their own, that they would look away from themselves, maybe even the law, and look to Christ. And I pray every Christian would be liberated to depend upon the Spirit and not the law. In Jesus' name, amen.